listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. see y'all here. It's Family Worship Sunday. You wonder about the kids, and uh, of course the parents know what that's all about, and they're getting more and more prepared every week as they bring in, uh, you know, started out with coloring books, and now they're bringing in jungle gyms and setting them up on the side to keep their kids occupied. Thank y'all for for just uh, for just laboring uh, with us through um, this process. Um, we've got several guests here today. I'm, I'm so honored that y'all would come to be with us, and it's so fun to just sit on the sidelines and watch y'all worship and sing and listen to you sing and just the beauty of, of that in this time together. But, but thank you for getting up and coming this morning to be here. Um, we're, we're honored, and it brings great joy to my heart. This morning we're in um, Luke chapter 23, and if you turn in your Bibles there, uh, we're in our next to the last message in going through the Gospel of Luke, we've taken several months now to labor through uh, this entire Gospel. And we've looked at the life of Jesus, probably more detail in um, Luke's Gospel about the life of Jesus than the other Gospels. And then we jump right into the ministry of Jesus. And now we've come to the end of the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus is going today, in the text, be crucified. Jesus is finally going to die. He's been talking about it all the way through, and uh, we're going to next week get Jesus out of the grave, and he is going to be resurrected from the dead. And so it's just a privilege to look at this text and some very familiar things in the text that we'll try to cover briefly this morning. Um, The first section I want you to see in Luke 23, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 26, um, is this, and I want to just give you a title to it. I want to read it and then uh, give you some details from the section that I'm going to read. The first section um, verses uh, 26 uh, to 31 is, is this. This would be the title for it. Judgment is coming and we need to repent. Judgment is coming and we need to repent. In this we see Jesus the prophet. In this text we're going to see Jesus the prophet. We're going to see Jesus the priest as he intercedes for those who have hung him there on the cross. We're going to see Jesus the king with a sign hung above above his head. We're also going to see Jesus the son of God trusting himself completely to the hands of the father. Whatever the father wants to do with the son, Jesus says, Father, into uh, your hands I commit my spirit. And so Judgment is coming, and we need to repent. Look at verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. We'll mention Simon Cyrene in a few minutes. But for our purposes in looking at the text, go to verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him you got to get that. They're mourning, they're crying, they're lamenting for what Jesus is going through. But while Jesus is on his way to the cross, after he's been beaten, he's, he's shredded, he's bruised, he's, he's unrecognizable, blood, dried, fresh blood, on and on we could go with, with all that he has experienced. Verse 28, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, 
Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breast that never nursed. Blessed, he's going to say, there's coming a day when people will say, You were blessed to be single. You were blessed not to be married. You were blessed not to have children. You were blessed to be barren. There's coming a day. We'll talk about what that day is. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, Cover us. Verse 31, interesting. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What in the world's going on here? Bottom line is this. Jesus is saying judgment is coming and we need to repent. We see this group of followers that have pity on Jesus and Jesus stops them. Verse 27, we see their pity. But beginning in verse number 28, we see Jesus' prophecy. And Jesus said, don't weep for me. You need to weep for yourself. You need to weep weep for sinners who die in their own sin and experience the judgment of God. You need to have a deep, heart-wrenching concern for your future, for yourself, for your children. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. The coming days that he's talking about is essentially 40 years in the future. We know that Jesus has mentioned this to us seven times already. Forty years in the future, we can go to 66 AD, and what's going to happen is there's going to be a Jewish revolt against the Romans. And the Romans are going to respond incrementally, but finally, in 70 AD, uh, a guy named Titus moves into Jerusalem. They've surrounded the city. Food hasn't been able to go in. The people are in terrible condition. But finally, in 70 AD, Titus, this this Roman uh, crusader, moves in, and he completely destroys every Jew that is in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is looking forward to that and telling them that judgment is coming in the future. And here's what he says. He says, when the wood is green, look at what they're doing to the wood that is green. What are they going to do to the branches that are dead? What is he talking about? I think Jesus is saying that he's the green wood. The green wood is the wood with life in it, right? The dry wood is wood that has no life, no moisture, Um, it's disconnected from the source of life. And he's saying, look, they have come to me, one who is innocent, one who has committed no crime. They have arrested me. And now I, as an innocent man, am being judged. But what do you think is going to happen to you when the judgment of God falls and you have no life in you? It's like trying to take green wood and throw it on the fire. You're like, is this ever going to burn? And you hear it hissing and you hear the moisture coming out of it. But you just take a little flame and you throw it on a bunch of branches that have been sitting aside for a while and it'll explode. He said, there is an explosion of judgment that is coming in the future on Jerusalem. This is the mercy of God. You say, hey, I don't like to hear about judgment. I don't like to hear negativity. I want to hear how good we are and how well things are going. And I just want to hear good things. Jesus is not telling them good things. Jesus is saying, I now am being judged, but don't weep for me because the judgment of God is going to fall on Jerusalem in the future and it is going to be terrible and it is going to be unbearable. So repent. That's what he's calling him to. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 38, repent. When they find out Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, what do we do? Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. One writer said this. He said, Jesus wants us to know enough about God's wrath to seek his mercy. 
We don't want to hear about wrath. We don't want to believe in a wrathful God. We don't want to believe in a God who judges sin. Here's what he's saying. You are in sin. Judgment is coming. Repent now. It is the voice of grace, the message of grace, the message of love that would say to you and me, repent now and cry out for revival and cry out for renewal. And he applies it specifically to the city of Jerusalem and to the Jewish people. I would say that the same could be said of the, the time and the land that we live in. And nobody wants to hear it. Uh, I'll, you know, they'll walk out saying you're a nationalist or, or whatever. But folks, we, we are a sinful people. And if you look at human history, here's what we know about human history. Nations rise and nations fall. This is what Jesus is dealing with here. What do you do in the midst of nations rising and nations falling? You repent. Why do nations rise and why do nations fall? Because there is sin. We can go to the Garden of Eden and we can see in Genesis chapter 2, God says that if you, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And in Genesis chapter 3, they're saying, God, we really don't want to listen to you. We've got a better way. We don't get far down the road and we get to Genesis chapter 9 and we see a worldwide flood where everybody is destroyed. Why? Because of sin. Wherever there is sin, there is judgment. The soul that sins, it will Die, Ezekiel 18.4. We don't get far removed from that before we see the, the, the entire story of human history is the story of nations rising and nations falling and God bringing another nation up and it may be a wicked pagan nation and he uses them to destroy a people who have turned their back on him or who are deep in sin. What we don't understand about sin is, is that when there is sin, the only Viable consequence for sin is death. Now, we, we don't get that. What, what, why, why does sin have to die? Because, because sin has no end. Sin has no limit. So you kill the host that is proliferating the sin. Jesus is saying there is sin here in Jerusalem, and judgment is going to fall on Jerusalem. They have rejected the Messiah, so judgment is coming, and we need to repent. And I would stand before you today and say, judgment is coming. I'm not sure any of us believe it. But judgment is coming. And we need to repent. And we need to cry out to God. And I just want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. I want you to think about that. You see, uh, we think we're as individuals, we can isolate. Somehow we can avoid all of the, what we would call the negative things of our culture. But I would plead with you this morning in the words of Jesus to these people in this text that judgment is coming. Let us find a place of repentance. Let us cry out to God for revival and renewal and for the Spirit to come and fill the church so that the church can be the people of God and, and look and proclaim and live like he has called us to live. So, so judgment is coming and we need to repent. Secondly, we see in verses 32 to 43, salvation is here and we need to believe. Let's look at that in the text. Look at beginning in verse 32 with me. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. There they crucified him. Um, they, they, they put Jesus to death. Um, I, I love the simplicity of Luke. Um, 
and uh, the fact that he wants us to get the point. He didn't, he didn't give us any other details. He just said they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see Jesus, the priest, who is interceding for those who have, who have put him in this predicament physically, who have beaten him, who have nailed him to the cross. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, and the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up from the off- coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, here we see Jesus the king, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were, hanged, um, who were hanged railing at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's a terrible thing to say, but um, let's face it, we do the same thing. Are you not the Christ? Why didn't you answer my prayer? Are you not the Christ? Why didn't I win the lottery Friday night? Amen? Are you not the Christ? Why did I have a flat tire? Are you not the Christ? Why, why, why is my spouse sick with a terminal disease? Why did they die? Are you not the Christ? Right? If, if, if you're the Christ, you can, you can change things. Are, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Are you not the Christ? Because the Christ would do what I expect him to do. Are you not the Christ? But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you're under the sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into, the, into your kingdom. If you're here today without Jesus Christ, if you're here today and you've never been saved, if you're here today, let me tell you that it's not complicated. It's not complicated. You could cry out this morning and say, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, save me. We see this, this guy, this thief, this criminal. I don't know how much theology he knew. All I know is that he cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, truly, truly. It's not repeated in the text. I'm repeating it. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Judgment is coming and we need to repent, but salvation is here and we need to believe. I'll spare you the details this morning on um, what happens when one is crucified. But if you look at just the fact that he was crucified and you mirror that over against 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 3, he is basically saying that Jesus died and in dying Jesus died for our sins. And Jesus went through so much that we can't even begin to understand. But he did die. There, there were going to come from this uh, resurrection theories, death theories. Jesus didn't really die. And so Luke is putting it here in the text to say he did die. And no one could have gone through what Jesus Christ went through. No human being could go through that and live no matter what the drug or concoction they gave him to make him look like he was dead. There are a ton of theories that want to take away the fact that Jesus died, that want to remove the reality and our need for substitutionary Atonement. So we see the crucifixion in the text. We've already read that. Some details we could get into, but our kids are in here this morning. 
And um, I'll send you my notes. Just send me your email address, and you can read them at home if you would like to do that. We see not only the crucifixion, and it's, and it's real, and Jesus died, but we also see his intercession. We see Jesus and his compassion. He says, forgive them. I stand in their place and pay for their sin so that I can legitimately request their forgiveness. This is so unlike anything that I would do. In agonizing, unbearable, unimaginable pain, Jesus cries out to the Father on behalf of those who inflicted his pain on him. Forgive these ignorant soldiers. Evidently, it made a tremendous impression on the centurion because he, in verse 47, said that Jesus is completely innocent and he worshiped him. We see in verses 35 not only the crucifixion and the intercession, but we see the reaction. And essentially in the text, they are saying things about Jesus that are true about Jesus. Jesus did save others, but they were, were thinking that any legitimate Messiah would save himself also. Jesus did save others. Jesus didn't save himself, but Jesus didn't save himself so that he could save others. They missed the whole point of Messiah. Jesus, you must be a bogus Messiah. Jesus, you must be a phony. Because a real Messiah would, would, would jump off of that cross like, like a, a, a wrestler jumping up off the ground and take a table and knock these guys across the head with it or a metal chair. So they react. The truth about Jesus is even acknowledged by his enemies. Secondly, they scoff and they mock but then their expectations. And, and I'll reiterate this again. A real Messiah would save himself. would get himself out of this predicament. A real Messiah couldn't be hung on a cross with nails driven into his hands and feet. Jesus, you are bogus because you do not meet our expectations. You are not real because you do not meet our expectations. And I would suggest to you this morning that many of us fall in the same category as those who scoff and mock at Jesus. If you do not meet my expectations, you are not real. Beware of falling into the trap of doubting Jesus when he doesn't meet your expectations. And then finally, we see salvation. Salvation is here and we need to believe. We, we see in the text that that we are guilty and Jesus is innocent. And there is this great exchange that takes place. We will never see the need for his innocence until we come face to face with our guilt. Did you hear me? The reason we've got to stand up and say that we are sinners and that judgment is coming, if, if, there, if there is no sin and there is no judgment and everybody's okay and all you want to hear is good stuff, then you'll never hear the gospel. You don't need the gospel. We need the gospel. We need salvation because we are sinners and judgment is coming. We will never see the need for his innocence until we come face to face with our guilt. We will never come face to face with his grace until we come to grips with our guilt. Most of us, when we're told we're wrong, most of us, when we told, we're told we're sinners, most of us, when somebody rebukes us or tells us judgment is coming, most of us run quickly to self-justification. And we have to lay that aside. Self-justification is as old as sin. It goes as far back as Eden. It's at the very beginning of the Bible. 
What we have to come to grips with is death is justice for us. That's what the thief on the cross is saying. That I'm going to die and you're going to die, oh brother thief over there. We are dying justly, but this man is innocent. He is not guilty. We are guilty. So we see, we see the fact that we are guilty in salvation. But then we move from the believer move from that to the believer and the unbeliever, to the God-fearer and the fool. And listen listen to this guy. I want you to listen to what he's saying as he hangs there on the cross and has this conversation with Jesus. Listen to this. He hopes in and for a kingdom that he has never seen. He hopes in and for a kingdom that he's never seen. He believes in a king whose crown is not gold but thorns, whose royal robe is nakedness and shame, whose glory is a body beaten, bruised, and shredded, whose royal court is filled with detractors, critics, and blasphemers, who is unpopular, who has been subdued by his enemies and fixing to die. Did you hear that? Please listen. If you're going to believe in Jesus... Now is the time. Now is the time. The Jesus that is hanging there with thorns pressed into his brow, with nails driven into his hands, the Jesus that is hanging there completely um, nude and shamed and mocked at and scoffed. If you're going to believe in Jesus, now is the time to believe in the suffering Jesus in this place while he is on the cross, in his humiliation. I would call on you to believe in this same Jesus that this thief on the cross believed in. Trust in this same Jesus that hangs on the cross because of your sin and loves you like you have never been loved. Trust this Jesus who is putting his love on display through the sacrifice of his life for you and for me. The thief on the cross believed in this Jesus. But I want you to think about how Jesus responded to him. When he said, remember me, think about this. This is salvation. Truly, truly, without a doubt. Truly, certainly, take this to the bank. This is a sure bet. There is no chance of this not happening. Truly, today, today, immediately, right now, there is no holding tank. There is no waiting period. Truly, today, you will be with me. You're not going to a great place. You're not going to uh, an, a, a vacation island. You're, you're going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. What is he talking about? He's saying, truly, today, right now, you will be in relationship and fellowship with me. That is salvation. Truly, today, you will be in paradise. Truly, today, you will experience all of the beauty that is intended to be experienced by everyone who has ever been created through relationship with Christ and Christ alone. What what your heart longs for and what you were created to experience is found in Christ alone. Call upon him today and he would say to you, truly, today you will be with me. I will come and live and dwell in you in paradise. A hopeless criminal in a spur-of-the-moment encounter with the suffering Savior who probably didn't know an ounce of theology was, was fully convinced that Jesus was who he said he was and that criminal was, char- was changed in a second on his deathbed for all eternity. So 
Salvation is here and we need to believe. Salvation also came not only to this guy, but we go back to Simon of Cyrene in verse 26. You see, if you go to, if you go to, um, if you go to Mark chapter 15, you realize there is this guy, Simon of Cyrene, and he has two sons, um, Alexander and Rufus. But if you also go to uh, Romans chapter 16 and verse number 13, you also see the, the same mention of these people. In other words, Simon of Cyrene and Alexander and Rufus were prominent contributors to the early church because when Simon of Cyrene obviously picked up that cross and saw Jesus, he believed in him and that impacted his life and not only his life but the life of his family. It takes us back to where Jesus is saying, don't weep for me but weep for yourself and weep for your children. And here Simon is seeing the fruit of the gospel take root in his family and his involvement in the early church. Judgment is coming and we need to repent. Salvation is here, and we need to believe. And then finally, verses 44 to 56, Jesus is dead, but not for long. Jesus is dead, but not for long. Verse 44, it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, so from noon until 3 p.m. It was completely dark. While the sun's light fell, and the, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. He worshiped and said, Certainly this man was innocent. Again, we see someone else who believes. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, and that's what they thought it was, a spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood a distance watching these things. Jesus is dead, but not for long. What's taking place here? The first thing we see is darkness. Darkness can mean uh, many, many things, but darkness can mean evil. Um, darkness can also... Um, means sorrow, but in this text, darkness means judgment. This was a day of judgment. We see the darkness because of the judgment of God. The Son of God suffered the wrath of God against human sin. The world stands still in the pitch black of darkness while Jesus suffered God's judgment for our sin. Jesus Christ alone is the only way through the judgment of a holy God on human sin. There was, there was darkness which indicated judgment which indicated Christ paying for our sin. This is not just in the Bible, by the way. Historians also um, record this event taking place. Not only was there darkness, and I, I can't imagine what that would be like, from noon to 3 p.m. It wasn't an eclipse, as some have tried to say. Eclipses don't last that long. But secondly, not only do we see darkness, but we see a divided veil. There is this veil in the temple. What is the veil in the temple? Briefly, there, there is the holy place where people can gather. There is the holy of holies where only the high priest can go into once a year on the Day of Atonement. And literally, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope around his leg in case he dropped dead when he went into the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is the place where God chose 
to come and exist, to be, to meet with the high priest on behalf of the sins of men. So the, the high priest is in there making sacrifice to God in the Holy of Holies for our sins. But this is the, this is the holiest space, the holiest place on the face of the planet, the Holy of Holies. The, the Ark of the Covenant is in there. So you don't take it lightly. If anybody but the high priest goes in there, they're certainly going to die. And if the high priest has got anything going on in his heart and mind, he's probably going to die and they're going to have to drag him out with a rope. But between the Holy of Holies, where only God dwells and the high priest can go once a year on the Day of Atonement, there is this curtain. And I've read about the curtain, and you're going to hear different things about the curtain. But let me tell you what my research has, has uh, um, brought forth in my mind about this curtain. This curtain, some would say it's 30 by 30, 30 feet by 30 feet. Some would say it's 90 feet tall. Some would say it's 60 feet tall. Uh, but it's this fabric that's, that's woven together. It was said that it would take 300 men to manipulate this curtain because of its massive size and weight, because the fabric is woven together in these beautiful colors so intricately and so tight. And some would say that this curtain was four inches thick, and some would say that it's the thickness of a human hand, which would be one inch thick. Any way you look at it, this curtain is a massive curtain. What happened, and the priests have recorded this in their writings. Josephus, the historian, has recorded it in his writings. And Matthew chapter 27 tells us in verse 51, when he was writing in the Synoptic Gospels about this, that this curtain, when Jesus died and all these things are happening simultaneously, we've got darkness, we've got Jesus committing himself to the hands of the Father, and we've got this curtain when Jesus died that literally rips open from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom, exposing the holy place, the holiest place, the holy of holies. What in the world is going on with that? Now, the fact of the matter is a human being couldn't have done that. You couldn't take machetes to that and do that because of its height, because of its width, because of its weight, because of its thickness. There is, there, there is no human being that could have done that. It was God who brought the darkness, and it was God who split the veil wide open. What in the world is going? Why was the veil separated? The veil was a barrier between holy God and sinful man. The veil of the temple was there to keep holy God away from sinful man and sinful man away from holy God. The veil of the temple was there to preserve the holiness of God. Why was the veil, this holy curtain that served as the divider between man and God, now suddenly ripped in half? The veil was ripped in two because Jesus was offering his body as the last sacrifice for sin that would ever be required. Jesus is offering his body as the last sacrifice for sin that will ever be required. There are some of you here today and you say, I'll tell you what, I would love to be saved and I would love to be a Christian, but you just don't know how bad I've been. And when I get my act together and when I get cleaned up and when I do my penance, right? When I pay, when I pay enough, so that I feel good enough that I can come be a part of the church or so that I can be a follower of Jesus, then I will follow Jesus. You're living in denial of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What you're doing is you're now taking another offering and you're offering it for your sin. Stop making offerings for your sin. Christ, Christ 
was the final offering for our sin. And God the Father was so pleased with the offering of Jesus Christ that this barrier that stood between holy God and sinful man was split half in two, and now we can enter into fellowship with holy God. And God's not looking at me saying, hey, hey, Mark, you can't come into my presence because there's some stuff you need to straighten out. There's some stuff. You say, you don't believe in repentance? No, I've already said I believe in repentance, right? Are you telling me it's okay if I just stay in my sin and live in it? No, I'm not, I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you that Jesus Christ loves you so much that your sin debt has been paid in full. Would, would you stop for a minute and say, I just receive what you have given to me, Lord Jesus, and he will come into your heart and into your life and his spirit will dwell in you and he will change you. He will change you. It's not about penance. It's not about you paying for your sin. And it's not about somebody else trying to make you pay for your sin. Jesus has paid for your sin. The, the veil was rent in two because Jesus was offering his body as the last sacrifice for sin that would ever be required. This is the end of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And by the way, this is the end of every system that required human required a human or institutional mediator. People say, ah, preacher, why don't you pray for me? You, you got a little better connection than I do. No, I don't. I don't have any better connection than you do. I'm not standing inside the veil and you're outside the veil. And you're sending me a text message while I'm inside the veil. The, 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 the veil of the temple has been split completely in, in half. And when you rest in the finished work of Christ, the Father says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Come on in. Come close to me. And may I be so bold as to say, come in to this holy place where the Father is and act like you belong there. That doesn't mean be arrogant. That means be profoundly grateful. Act like you belong there because of what Christ has done. The way is open to God through Christ alone. So we see, we see two things. We see a termination. The temple is no longer the meeting place between God and man. A building is no longer the meeting place between God and man. Somebody will say, hey, you need to take that hat off in the sanctuary. Right? You don't need to go up on the platform. That's the, now stay away from the instruments, okay? But there's nothing holy about this room. There's nothing holy about this platform. You are the temple, right? This is not the temple. You are the temple. And so, that, so there is this termination. The temple is no longer the meeting place. We can walk right into the presence of God right now. Not only is it that, but, but it, it, it is an inauguration. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22 speaks of that inauguration. And it's no longer uh, one time per year with a singular priest going before God on behalf of our sin. But now we have perpetual access to the one who has paid our sin debt. And it is done. The one who was despised and rejected, one writer said, by men, has caused us to be welcomed and received by God. It's through Christ and Christ alone. And then we see Jesus. We, we move. We've got, boom, we've got this darkness, and we've got the veil of the temple running into. And now we see Jesus, the Son of God. And, and if, you'll, if you'll look at, at Jesus and what he's saying, then Jesus 
calling out with a loud voice. He had some strength left in him, right? He gave up his life. It wasn't taken from him. He laid down his life. It wasn't forced out of his grip. But here we see Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we go back to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus has prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what is he praying? He's saying, Lord, if, if, it poss- if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your, be done, your will be done. And the suffering that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is experiencing is at the hands of the Father. This is the will of the Father for the Son to suffer so grievously in payment for sin. But yet, Jesus Jesus didn't say in the middle of his suffering, I don't trust you anymore, Father. I don't want to go through that. I don't trust you anymore. My youngest son was in Dallas a couple of days and at his in-laws. And um, I'm sure he loves my, his in-laws about as much as I love mine. Amen. And last night he was getting on a plane, and I'm looking at this text. And I always have these crazy thoughts. Does anybody else have crazy thoughts? I'm like, I don't want anything to happen. And then I found out he was flying on Frontier Airlines, and I'm like, does anything good happen on Frontier Airlines? You know, are they going to make it? And the question then comes, can you trust me? Can you trust me? Here here Jesus is, suffering specifically at the hands of the Father for the sins of those who have rebelled against God. How much more upside down can this be? Here the Father sent his Son to die for those who are rebels and his enemies, those who are dead that they might have life. And now here is the Son in the midst of his suffering and the complete decision-making process of the Father that Jesus the Son uh, really hasn't been asking any advice on. I'm sure in eternity past some conversations were had. I don't want to presume upon those though. And here is the son saying to the father, I commit myself right now to your hands. You do with me, with your, to me, with your hands, whatever you want to do. I trust you that much. I don't want to be in control. I don't want to determine outcomes. I know I got a plan for my life and I got a plan for my money and I got a plan for my house and I got a plan for my kids and I got a plan for my grandkids, but wait a minute, does the Father know better? And he does. And if Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, could rest in the work of the Father, how much more do you think he's calling us to rest in him? And then finally... I said this section is Jesus is dead, but not for long. If you look, let me, let me read this and, and speak to it briefly, and then I'll close. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a, he was a, a, a Jew, a Pharisee, a, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. I don't know if Joseph Arimathea, when the, when the Sanhedrin voted, when they decided Jesus was public enemy number one, and they were going to take him to Pilate, and they wanted Jesus dead. I don't know if, jo- if Joseph of Arimathea voted against it, or if he just wasn't there, but he obviously didn't con- cons- consent. And, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. 
Obviously, he had some connections. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate, by the way, would not have given the body to Joseph of Arimathea had Jesus Christ not been dead. Certified dead would not have happened. Again, this is all in the text of Scripture so that we can be certain that not only did Jesus die, but Jesus had to die, and our sin debt was paid in full through the death of Christ and Christ alone, and we can stop trying to pay for our sin and accept the fact that Jesus paid for our sin. And we need to stop trying to make those who have sinned against us pay for their sin as well. Jesus paid for that sin too. Verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb and cut a stone, uh, tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. What was happening here? Jesus was dead and they didn't, and, and they, they loved him and they wanted to honor him, but they really weren't expecting him to come back to life. You see, there, there's something about resurrection that we don't understand until we experience it. There's something about the Spirit coming and living in us that we don't understand until we experience it. There's something about being crucified with the Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. There's something about Jesus who says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I wonder how many of us experience that resurrection life. They really weren't expecting Jesus to come back to life. They were trying to give him a good burial. Okay. Verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. If you're expecting somebody to raise up, rise up from the dead three days later, you're not going to get a bunch of spices and ointments. They're not expecting Jesus to be resurrected from the dead. Although Jesus told them over and over again, I'm going to suffer at the hands. I'm going to, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise on the third day. They were not expecting Jesus Christ. To, by the third day, you need the spices. You're going to be stinking pretty bad. And that's what they were expecting. But the text ends on the Sabbath day. They rested according to the commandment. I love love verse 24, chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week. You see, Jesus is dead, but not for long. And next week, he's coming out of the grave. He is alive. You say, what would you like for us to take home? Well, I'd I'd like like for you to take... Um, the, these three things home with you. Number one, judgment is coming and we need to repent. I, I, would, I would hope, ladies and gentlemen, that we would be a repentant people. I would hope that we would repent. I'm not telling you to do penance. I'm asking you to repent. I'm asking you to search your heart. I'm asking you to look at your sin. I'm asking you to look at you and me both to look at our apathy, to look at our complacency, to look at our love for the world, to, to, look, to look at how little we think about Jesus Christ coming back, to, to look at how little we see the decay that's happening all around us, to, to, to look with uh, sort of a, a jaded spirit and a lack of concern because somehow we think that because we've got credit cards in a bank account when judgment falls, we're going to be okay, and we're not. So I would call on you this morning and say judgment is coming and we need to repent. And if you're here without Christ, judgment is coming. And you are going to stand before a holy God and pay for your sin yourself if you don't accept the payment that Christ has made for your sin. Judgment is coming. We need to repent. Secondly, salvation is here. We need to believe. Would you come to Christ? Because when you come to Christ, Jesus Christ would say to you truly, today, 
You will be with me. You will be with me. I want you with me. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of the world, the one who holds all things together, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the central focal point of all of human history, says, hey, I want you with me. I want you. I want you. Salvation is here. We need to believe. And finally, Jesus is dead, but not for long. Repent, judgment is coming, cry out for mercy, pray for revival. Secondly, believe. Everybody in the text just believed. Started out with a believer, Simon of Cyrene. We see the thief on the cross, he believes. We see the centurion who is over the men that are torturing Jesus, he believes. We see Joseph of Arimathea, the the member of the Sanhedrin. He believes. We see these women who are following at a distance. They believe. They believe in Jesus. And your name needs to be added to the list. I would beg you this morning to believe and experience all of the radical transformation that goes along with it. Thirdly, I would say repent, believe, and relate. Relate Relate without ritual. Uh, it's unbelievable how ritualistic we find ourselves so very often. How superstitious our faith is. Relate without ritual. Re- relate without superstition. Relate without guessing. Relate without penance. Relate without doubt. Relate without fear. Why? Because the veil of the temple has been ripped in two. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, we've been welcomed into his presence. We, that's, just, that's just it. There, 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 is no, there is no ritual. You don't, you don't need any ritual. Don't believe these folks that are telling you to go through a ritual. I want, rit- I want a ritual. I do. I do. I want a ritual. I want superstition. You say, why? Because I have some leverage in that. And if I can get my ritual right, and if I can get my superstition right, and if I can get my, 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 you know, my pre-manufactured prayer right, then God is obligated to give me what I want. I need that. It's a lie. It's a lie. There's a God on the other side of the curtain who wants you to come in, and it's based solely completely, completely on what Jesus has done. Trust Jesus Christ. Relate to the Father through His Son. And it is a real relationship. And then finally, live. You know, if we are not living and experiencing the resurrected life, when we when we When we believe in Christ, when we rest in Christ, we experience newness of life. Old things are passed away. We have a new nature. We have a new heart. When we experience newness of life, we begin to experience resurrected life here. But ultimately, we will experience resurrected life when we go and spend eternity with Jesus Christ. One of the most beautiful places in all the world ought to be the gathered saints who have flowing out of them the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. It should be the most contagious, the most beautiful, the most powerful, 
the most peaceful place on the face of the planet because we have resurrection life. And so I want to challenge you. I know we come in this place and we've got a million different concerns and a, 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 so many things that are stirring in our heart. And we have, we have anger, we have bitterness, we have worry, we've got all sorts of things stirring around. But there is a life that we can have that is ours, that is through Christ and Christ alone. It's not on the other side of the curtain. The curtain isn't there. We can walk right into the presence of God. And that's what we were created for. If we trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon him this morning.